Welcome to N10, brought to you by the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma, Asia Pacific. N10 is a podcast for journalists, journalism educators and researchers and health professionals dedicated to improving media coverage of trauma, conflict and tragedy. We're excited to bring you the first series of the podcast, hosted by Lisa Miller. Lisa is co-host of the ABC's News Breakfast program and was a foreign correspondent for the ABC in Washington DC for three years covering major stories in Asia, London and America, including the 2005 Bali bombing and the controversial hanging of an Australian drug runner in Singapore. In this first series of In 10, Lisa chats with fellow journalists about their experiences covering trauma and conflict. Kumi Taguchi, welcome to In 10. Thanks, Lisa. How have you spent much of your career, Kumi? Pretty multifaceted radio, hosting radio, hosting live news, live TV, reporting, being on the road, doing sort of bushfire coverage, things like that. Lots of big live events, hosting those. And then currently I'm hosting a forum program called Insight on SBS. When did you first start thinking about the kind of reporting you were doing and what effect it might be having? I started thinking about it early and not from my perspective. I thought about it from the perspective of early journalists that I really loved and followed. So I was really obsessed with the Vietnam War and the journalists who went in there in the late 60s. And I was probably in my late teens where I remember thinking, how would that affect them? What would their lives be like after being in a war zone? Or And so I started thinking about it in terms of myself when I noticed I would get very attached to stories, felt quite moved by stories, realised that there wasn't a clear boundary between a story and a human because we're all humans and we all feel stories and we all live them. And that combined with all the reading I was doing around journalists in quite difficult circumstances. I was then went through an obsession with Rwanda and the journalists there and read a lot about the impact on them. And um, so those two things combined, I would have been in my mid-20s, I would say, when it really started to become a real interest for me. And then how did you know, what kind of effect was that then having on you? At that time, I guess a knowledge that I wasn't immune to the impact of story on my own body and my own sense of mind. And I could get quite down feeling a sort of a sense of inability to make the world a better place, to change things, to help, which really started to be quite challenging for me. But then ironically, I found the industry itself when you're so focused on facts and delivering information and being quite objective actually was quite a good shield to that temporarily um, because you, you go in there and you do your job and you work really hard and you hit the deadlines and you're running on adrenaline. But then I would find that I would crash after probably a few weeks of a big story and sort of have to really start to process what was going on. Do you wish you'd known back then what you know now about what that kind of reporting can do to you if you if you keep pursuing it in the passionate way that you have always done? 
I wish I had. I wish I'd probably been less adrenaline fueled and in that busy environment and sit back a bit more and realize that this is actually a very human experience. And I think there's also the tendency, particularly because of the reading I did and the, the journalist I really looked up to, they were people who were in very challenging situations. And I felt like I didn't really deserve to feel as um, challenged by material I was reporting because I wasn't on the ground, because I was just in the studio for three hours a day, five days a week, looking at footage repeatedly. Oh, so and you were minimising what you thought you were going through. Yes, I was minimising it because I thought, well, this only happens to people who are in the field or the only people who really deserve to feel this are those who are actually seeing the bombs going off. Which and, we know is not right. Which we know is totally not right. We know that if we sit here, they're looking at repeated images, repeated words, it has exactly the same effect on us. But I didn't have that knowledge and it wasn't really, I've got to say, emphasised a lot in the environment I was working in. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing. You see that with soldiers, um, peacekeepers particularly feel like they don't deserve to be traumatised by their experiences because they weren't in a real war zone, which we know is incorrect. What tips would you give to younger reporters now? I would say it's the basic things. Sleep, eat, keep really on top of your own mental health hydrated I, hydrated it's, <laughs> it's like how many of us forget to drink water how many of us forget <laughs> to drink water it's okay to be joyful I think there's a there's moments when we're covering something so serious that feels and is so weighty that we feel a little bit guilty if we go out and have fun and have a laugh and go and dance to music because the world can feel very heavy. Um, moments of joy and living life, I think, is very, very important. The other thing I feel is incredibly important is chatting and debriefing. So when I covered a particularly challenging story in a hospital for two weeks, I was quite shut off from my support network and I was isolated in a different city. And I knew that I was going to need to debrief, but I had no one around me. So I actually nominated someone back in my home base and said to that person, look, I'm going to call you at five o'clock every day and debrief. I don't think I'll need to, but I think I have to because I can't let this accumulate. And I said, can you just be there on the other end of the phone at five and I can just download for half an hour? And I said, if I don't call, can you call me? And that was one of the best feelings to nearly be proactive and be on the front foot about things and get ahead of it, if that makes sense. That sure does. And I remember that reporting you did at the time. But Kumi, I also look at you now, um, sort of being the, the circus wrangler in a way of some really intense subjects in the studio where you have people revealing things they've never said before on national television and you're the conduit and you've got to put it into context and I can see that you feel deeply about it. How do you process that at the end of a insight program? We debrief and talk about the experience in the studio. Up until that point, what I think I'm quite lucky is because I know who's going to be in that studio and for weeks before I go into the studio, I'm working through in my mind how I'm going to manage 
that particular story and that particular person. And what I do as well is before I go into the studio, I, I kind of close my eyes and I remind myself why we wanted to do that episode in the first place and take myself out of it and just think my job is to give every single person in that room the, the space to be vulnerable and I need to sort of hold it together. But what that means is, yes, there's debriefing afterwards. So I make sure I chat with my team. I have sort of physical techniques in the studio so that I can keep emotionally together while I'm there, but maybe um, can let go a bit afterwards. I do also believe very much in we've got a counselling service at work and I use up every single... Me too. <laughs> do you? Every single... Um, hour that you're allowed I can yeah, yeah and and I'm not ashamed to so. say that I think no. we need to make that not only normal but a good thing to do oh totally and I'm constantly saying to my team hey you get x number of free sessions a year just use them even if you don't think you've got anything to say I actually asked for more sessions last year I found lockdown challenging producing our show challenging in lockdown just feeling quite weary about the world and I just had no qualms about emailing work and saying I need more sessions um the work I do is pretty tough and it was just not even a question of them not saying you know no they're not saying yes that means a lot for someone like you to be saying that publicly Kumi I'm sure it will have a huge impact you know that I've been involved with the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma for a long time given all of your experiences over the years why do you think it's important to have an organisation like the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma? It normalises our jobs and the emotional impact of our jobs wherever we work in the scale of the newsroom or radio or being on the road or writing for online and it's so important to feel like these feelings and how we process them is sort of part and parcel of what we do and that there's their support networks and understanding around it. You know, I was just watched, looking at the website the other day that the level of information on there that you can tap into and then you can go, oh, this is actually a, this is actually sort of a normalised thing. Now how do I approach my work given that this exists? I just think it's so fantastic and without it I'm not quite sure where people go because it's, I think it's a very specific kind of work trauma in a way. Um, specific kind of emotional challenges that we have in our work that aren't necessarily always solved by debriefing to friends, a counselling service, having a chat to people who might work outside the industry. There's a very specific nature to what we do. And I feel like that's why organisations like DART are just so incredibly important. And the research that's constantly being done, because as you would know, Lisa, you've been involved in this for so long. We learn more and more and more every single year about our work and our emotional responses to it. And that constant level of research is also such an important part of, of DART for sure. Kumi, keep up the great work. It's great to talk to you. Great to talk to you too, Lisa. 